17, Psalm 17. Children, here are your questions for this evening. First, what does hallelujah mean? Two, why should everyone everywhere worship God? Three, why should Christians be especially thankful and always worshiping God? ask you to keep your Bibles handy, you'll notice right away that our main passage this evening is only two verses, but we'll be making reference to a number of other scriptures as well, and so please be prepared to turn in your Bibles to different places. Psalm 117, this is the word of God. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. There ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word. And even these few verses speak to us so much about your worthiness and how you are to be worshipped. And now, Lord, as we consider this passage and as we consider much of other things that you tell us in your word. We pray for your blessing. Please be with us. Send your Holy Spirit to bless the preaching this evening. We come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I chose this short psalm to remind us prior to our missions conference that the missionary endeavor is a call to all nations to worship God. The mission endeavor has very much to do with worship. We don't often think of it that way, we typically think of the fact that the missionary endeavor has primarily to do with people coming to know Jesus Christ, and that certainly is at the heart of any gospel preaching, certainly the heart of the missionary endeavor. But a big part of it is worship. God is calling people to worship him. This passage in the Old Testament reminds us of the, the boundaryless scope of the call to worship calling the crown of creation, humanity, to worship the Almighty God. Not only to worship God, not only to worship the one true and living God, but to do so with vigor. The psalm opens up, Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him all peoples. Sing hallelujah, that's the word there, or shout hallelujah. Hallelujah simply meaning praise the Lord. We always want to use that word carefully. But it's a call to vigorously Praise God. The psalm, simple psalm, I see two parts. One is a call to the nations, a universal call to all humanity to worship God. And then there's a covenantal call, a call to God's people who are especially blessed among all people to worship God. So first of all, all nations. The word there for nations is goy. If you have any Jewish friends, you know there are a there is a people group called the Goyim. That is anyone who is not Jewish. We are the Goy if we're not Jewish. And so uh, it's actually calling the nation from the covenant people of God to the nations, to the Goyim of the world to worship God. Worship God, all you nations, worship God, all you people, all you people groups bow down before God and worship. Man was created 
to worship. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they knew who God was. They knew of his glory. They had unbroken fellowship with him, and they knew that he was worthy of worship. Untainted knowledge of God. They knew how great he was. But as we know, the fall tragically changed all that and and didn't only change the bent of his heart, mankind's heart, in all different ways, but also caused him to begin to create all kinds of other things other than God to worship. Multiplying gods. Ultimately, I believe, what mankind does without Christ, without a relationship with God, is makes himself God. He's the big God behind all the little gods that he worships. But man begins to create all kinds of false gods, foolish attempts. Case in point, flip back just one page probably in your Bibles to Psalm 115. Here's just an example of some real tangible false gods. Remember, they're not always things that we can touch, but... Here's some examples. Not unto us, not unto us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Man given over to false worship because of his ignorance and rejection of God. Jump ahead to Romans chapter 1. Paul describes what this looks like in this progression and how it has to do with mankind refusing to worship God and give him due honor. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, man, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. For images resemble more, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And then Paul goes on further to say, God gave them over even further into their depravity. So man's mind and his heart becomes consumed by all these false gods that they choose to worship. 
it really is quite tragic, isn't it? You trashed your spiritual lives. Trashed spiritual lives will misdirect worship. It always happens. It's very grievous when we see people around us who are worshiping either false tangible gods or false gods of any sort, whatever it may be, whether it's little statues or whether it's a false religion or if it's simply worshiping their own selves or worshiping material things, which is seriously a problem in our society. It's a tragic thing. But how grieved are we that there's so much false worship and darkness around us? It's all around us. You don't have to look very far. Look at some of your neighbors, probably. Look at some of our own family members. Think about when Paul entered Athens. says that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. You walk around Holland. It's a city full of idols. You don't see little statues. You don't see little things that people are bowing down to worship, although... There's false religion, serious false religion in Holland and surrounding areas. But people are worshiping all kinds of other things but the one true and living God. Sometimes it is very tangible. I will never forget going to New York City with a friend of mine who was converted out of Roman Catholicism. And I had been to Catholic churches before, but I'd never been in something as magnificent as St. Patrick's Cathedral. And if you walk into St. Patrick's Cathedral and you're not familiar with all that's going on, it is striking. The walls are lined with candles. The walls are lined with statues. There's statuary everywhere. There's this and that going on. There's incense burning. There's stuff up on the ceiling. And I was kind of struck with amazement. But my friend who knew what that stuff was all about, And she knew the idolatry that it all represented was vexed in her heart. She actually became physically nauseous. And we had to leave. I'm sure that she was experiencing something of what Paul experienced when he entered Athens. Throughout the ages after the fall, God did preserve a God-fearing line that maintained reasonable worship, eventually established Israel and gave them very specific directions on how to worship the one true and living God. But the people outside of Israel and surrounding Israel were very creative in their godless worship, sometimes in terribly hideous ways. We referred to some of that in Psalm 115. But if you look at the list of gods and goddesses and the rituals and the idols and the statues, it's, it's stunning. Tragically, Israel embraced many of them, even some of the most horrific ones. And so you see that that mankind, by nature, because of his corrupted heart, will worship, he's made to worship, but because of depravity, will worship amiss. And worship amiss is a high offense to a holy God who is alone to be worshipped. And so here we have in our psalm, worship the one true God Time and time again, mankind is called to worship the one true God. But man, again, continues to reimagine God or to make false gods. Here's John Calvin on this whole idea 
of man creating and imagining false gods. Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a god according to its own capacity. As it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance, it conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. So imagining God. But he goes on later to say, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. But as Paul said in Romans, man is without excuse. There's no excuse for creating idols. Psalm, one, Psalm 19 tells us that the, the very heavens declare the glory of God. God in creation, in his works, testifies to himself. But because of the fall, that's not enough. And so God graciously gives us his word to explain things to us. And it's upon God's people to make sure that that word gets out. The word doesn't get out. If this type of call to worship doesn't get out to the world, how will they know? If no one tells them, how will they hear? And so it's upon God's people to bring the message to the world. Old Testament people, when it comes to declaring it to the world, is primarily through their faithfulness, when they're faithful, and through their worship. They're not evangelistic. Our, our Old Testament fathers and mothers were not evangelistic the way that we understand evangelism. There was a call to nations to repent of false worship, to worship the true God, but not the kind of evangelism that we're familiar with. There was a trace of people called in. If you trace the Old Testament, you'll see that, that nations are being gathered in. We also understand that it is God's intention all along that the nations will be gathered in. Promises in Scripture. But the missionary endeavor as we know it, as the call to worship to the world comes with the gospel. It can only really come with the gospel when the Messiah that Israel long waited for finally comes and now the good news of the gospel is preached to the nations. And the good news of the gospel preached to the nations has everything to do with the person and work of Jesus, but it is a call to worship. And it's a call to the nations. Even at the birth of Christ, the angel announces, right, this is good news of great joy to the nations. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. It has to do with worship. Undeniably, Jesus makes it clear that it has to do with worship. Turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Beginning in verse 19, here's the situation where, where Jesus is interacting intentionally with a Samaritan woman. He went you might say, out of his way to interact with this woman who was a part of a false religion. And not only were the Samaritans despised by uh, 
the Jews because of their ethnicity, but it was primarily because of their false religion. And they had their own temple. And as you may be familiar with the story, Jesus is interacting with this woman, getting to the heart of her issue. But one of the things she tries to do to divert, it seems to me, from her own heart issue is this issue of worship. But we get profound theological and doctrinal truth in this conversation. We'll just pick up in verse 19, chapter 4. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And Jesus is making it clear that at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of what's coming in, in the fullness of the kingdom is, is worship. That's what God is seeking, those who will worship those who will worship him. Once Jesus finishes his work, once Jesus accomplishes salvation and the gospel in fullness is intact and that gospel is preached, that's when the real missionary endeavor sparks and fires into flame, flames into fire, something like that. When you look at Acts, when the apostles start to preach in other tongues, People from nations, all nations, hear the mighty acts of God. And the result of that is what? Many worshipers. And those worshipers go out. And in essence, they're calling people to worship. Certainly through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they're called to worship. And so we see that worldwide call to worship continue. The church pursues that missionary endeavor. It has gone on throughout the ages, sometimes tragically, terribly amiss by some very misguided and sometimes evil so-called Christians in a twisted kind of missionary endeavor that involved more death than gospel. But the true church has always been faithful to the call to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And that is what turns people into true worshipers of God in spirit and in truth. In a sense, the church calls the world to cast down idols and worship the Lord alone. Now, it's fair to say that outside of Christ's revelation and through the Holy Spirit, that true worship can't happen. That all these other forms of worship and all these other false religions 
simply isn't true worship. Only God's people through the Lord Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit can truly worship, which, by the way, uh, makes any notion of ecumenical worship with other religions a travesty and a high offense to God. And Christians have to be very careful about how they ally themselves with other people, especially in the issue of worship. And so that first point is that all nations are called to worship, even in the Old Testament, but most specifically in the gospel. And the gospel of Jesus Christ goes out. But here's another thing for us, the second point, and this will be shorter that all saints are called to worship. We must never take for granted the wonderful privilege we have to worship. Not only as a congregation, but also as families and as individuals, the opportunity, the privilege to worship. For his great, for his steadfast love toward us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. We have good reason, great cause to worship. We don't have to, and we shouldn't leave it to our own imagination. Think about that. You've been called to worship. Just think about that. Think about the fact that you have responded to the call to worship. Think about the fact that you weren't left to your own devices to figure out God. You weren't left to your own imagination to try to figure out how to worship God. You weren't left, as you would have been by nature, to worship yourself and worship all kinds of false gods. You weren't left to that. I trust that you haven't even been left to worshiping material comforts, as so much of our culture does. You haven't been left to that. That's an act of God's grace in your life. Left to yourself, you would be just as foolish and ignorant as those people we read about in Psalm 115. You might be left to worship a pantheon of gods or even things that are representations of creatures. But that's not where God left you. He's called you out of that. And while you may have never known anything but true worship in spirit and in truth, never take that for granted. That's an act of God's grace in your life. That has everything to do with, with your salvation in Jesus Christ, the grace of God at work in your life, the illumination of the Holy Spirit, not only showing you Christ, but opening up your eyes and your hearts to the God of all creation. And here you are. You're not worshiping false gods. You're not worshiping the creature. You worship the creator God, who is also your redeemer and your sustainer. You think of all the things that we could thank God for. Just, just think about what he says here in just a few words. For great is his steadfast love. Just parse Pick apart, part by part, the many aspects, the many pieces of God's love that he displays toward you. Many aspects of love. Think about how faithful he is towards you. You certainly have great cause to praise. We could 
easily spend more than an hour on Sunday worshiping God for his goodness, his love, and his faithfulness. We could easily spend even more than two hours, as we often do on the Lord's Day. If you ever tried to count your blessings, you would not be able to stop. Well, don't let it just be Sunday, whether it's an hour or two hours or 24 hours. Let it be your whole week. Let your whole week be filled with worship. Maybe not in the kind of worship that we do here, but, but in worship. Fill your life with worship. Let your very life be that sweet offering to God that is worship. Say with the psalmist, I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. And finally, let us be a testament, a testimony to God's love and our love for God. In our worship, if somebody observes our worship, Does it shine through enough to make unbelievers envious? Not in some kind of visible way, but is our sincerity and our reverence and awe for the Almighty God evident here in our congregation? I trust that it is. Sincerity and passion, genuine love, testifies to God's love for us and our love for him. Testify to one another. Testify to the world around us. And use the gospel to explain exactly what that love looks like. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That's a call to worship the God of love and faithfulness, who for the sake of sinners like us provided the Lord Jesus Christ that we wouldn't be lost anymore, we would not be in darkness and ignorance, not immersed in idol worship, not immersed in foolishness, but new creatures in Christ Jesus. Well, our missions conference is coming up, and I just hope that during that week we're inspired by our speakers and by the things that will be presented that maybe we'll consider anew our own place in this this advancement of the kingdom to see where we personally fit in in the mission some of you know some of us need to have a little more clarity is where do we fit into this whole missionary endeavor for most of us if we fit in, and we must fit in if we're Christians, we'll be very local right here in our own lives. But maybe, just maybe, as we hear from other missionaries and as we hear the word of God preached, maybe some of us will be stirred up to be stretched a little bit out of our own comfort zones and be willing to be used by God in the advancement of his kingdom in ways that we might never have imagined. But maybe our prayer needs to be that we would see just how we fit into this marvelous plan of calling the nations to worship, 
through the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord our God, we can begin by thanking you that you have not left us to our own devices. As we read in scripture about how mankind plunged so quickly into idolatry, and as we look at the world right around us, and we see idol worship and false religion manifest itself in so many different ways. Lord, not only do we grieve over that because we recognize that people are in bondage all around us, we do recognize that, but we're especially thankful that you did not leave us there, but that you called us out of darkness into your marvelous light, that someone Sometime, perhaps generations past in our families, perhaps much more recently in our own lives, somewhere along the line, someone told us the gospel of Jesus. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, you set us free from bondage. And you have allowed us now to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we pray that we would never, ever take that for granted. And Lord, we also pray that you would help us to see just where we fit in to your great movement of your kingdom right here in our own locale or perhaps even in the far reaches of this, your world. Whatever it is, Lord, we ask that we would be your willing people. So work in our hearts, we ask. Give us clarity, give us direction. Lord, help us to be bold with your gospel wherever we are and help us to truly worship you as your people, as a congregation, in our homes, and even throughout the day in our own private lives. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love, your steadfast love, and your faithfulness that endures forever. And we come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our closing hymn is hymn number 32, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and we'll please stand as we sing.